Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the good news for Prime Minister Boris Johnson is that some people believe he might have enough votes for his deal. The bad news for the Prime Minister today is that hardly anybody knows when Parliament might actually get to vote on it. Joining us now from London is Edward Evans, Bloomberg Managing Editor in charge of Brexit. Quite a job, Ed, so let's talk about it. What happened this past weekend and what's the sequencing of events over the next couple of days? Parliament on Saturday rejected the deal that Johnson struck with Brussels. He will try and put it again to Parliament today. Uh, but in doing so, he risks a clash with Speaker John Burko. There's a convention in the British Parliament that once Parliament has voted on something, you can't put it to Parliament again. Nevertheless, the government is going to put forward the what's called the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. This is the actual piece of legislation that implements Brexit to Parliament this week. I mean, the idea is to get that through the whole of Parliament by October 31st. Now, the problem for Johnson is going to be whether he can get both either of those pieces of legislation through, uh, but more importantly, with the second, whether it's going to be subjected to amendments by his opponents. What do we know about the numbers at the moment, Ed, and how they've changed since this past weekend? Well, the numbers are very, very close. It has to be stressed. To get his deal over the line, Johnson needs to get 61 waverers to fall in line behind him. Now, on our estimates, we think he's got 62. Uh, Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab over the weekend was saying that the government thinks it has the numbers to do it. But you'd expect a government minister to say that. How often do you hear a government minister saying they expect to lose a piece of legislation in Westminster? I think the only safe answer is that it's going to be very, very close. And we're in for 10 days of intense parliamentary trench warfare here. A lot of rumours over the last couple of days about the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, and what they'll be pushing for in the next 40 hour, eight hours and whether they'll team up with Labour, Ed. What do we know about that? Yeah, this is the DP. They rejected Boris Johnson's initial deal. Their argument is they do not want to see Northern Ireland treated differently to the rest of the UK. Now, Johnson, uh, has because he wants to leave the EU customs union, he, that, uh, Ireland is dead opposed to that idea. So he has had to fudge a Northern Ireland status, essentially. It will, it will, like the UK, it will leave the customs union, but it will be forced to follow some EU customs rules. Now, a DUP um, um, MPP says that the, the party's meeting uh, with, with the, uh, to discuss potential amendments to the government's legislation, but he's ruled out backing any move to keep the, the, the UK in the European Union's customs union. That's something that Labour has been looking to do. Now, Edward, very quickly here, we're going to we're going to do a ballet here, and I'm beginning to hear discussion of November 28th, where there'll be a general election. Who wants a general election right now? Boris Johnson, in short, in short, uh, but nobody else. Uh, for Johnson, it's it's the way that he can get this through. Go to the country, get a majority in Parliament that allows him to yeah. put his Brexit deal through. Um, everybody else is very much uh, more ambivalent about it. Labour, if you look at where they're polling, Corbyn is no real, in no real position to go to the country. Uh, his party is divided on Brexit, uh, and he's <clears> resisted <throat> any chance to do that to do that so far. Edward Evans, thank you so much. Thanks, really Ed. Ahead of all of our, really, I should say, and in working 20, truly 24-7, it's a cliche, but they are.
Let us continue this discussion, maybe broaden it out. Meredith Sumter with us with Eurasia Group. It was a joy to have Ian Bremmer with us last week, and we were raving about Meredith Sumter's abilities, not only on Asia and on China, but really with a holistic view for Eurasia Group. She joins us from our studios in Washington. Uh, Meredith, on, on China right now, what is the mood that you've seen within the Chinese media, the Chinese-speaking media? The Chinese-speaking media uh, is really of, of two minds. One, they are messaging constructively about the interim deal that has been reached in principle with the United States, and all eyes are on some kind of arrangement um, being agreed to ahead of the APEC meeting where Presidents Xi and Trump will meet uh, and sign the agreement. On the other hand, uh, they're also messaging calm Uh, and a medium to long-term view of how they're managing the economy. So we've seen a lot of hyperventilation in the markets about China being at 6% growth. This is is something that, look, you know, Chinese context, I mean, look, we've been actually been below 6% growth for some time. Right. Nudge, nudge, right? So they're, they're looking to just manage those expectations that higher quality growth means a lower growth rate for China. And look, the, with the, the trade confrontation going on, of course, you're going to see a downward pressure okay. on their growth rates. I want to bring what you just said with your, your core expertise on Asia over to Brexit. Yes. Because it's the same thing. They're managing the chaotic message in the United Kingdom as well. Do you just assume dampened growth in the United Kingdom for the same reasons, frankly, as China, which is just a certain level of chaos? The UK economy is, they're going to, ha- the government's going to have to find some way. Look, look, all the focus has been on deal or no deal. Are we going to get this through? And as soon as this gets wrapped, then I think you're going to see Westminster yeah. focus in on, oh my goodness, now what do we have to do? And not just on the economic front. Like, look, negotiating trade agreements takes time. Uh, but also, they're going to have an eye towards Northern Ireland and towards Scotland as well to think about what are the medium to long term effects of well, uh, political effects mm, of leaving and, leaving the European Union yeah, on those two important parts. And John, jump in here, because with all this going on with Burkow at 2.30, there's a court ruling in Scotland, basically out of nowhere. I mean, Meredith, are, are we going to end up talking about Scotland having an independent vote to I, leave the United Kingdom? I do think momentum is heading that direction. But listen, I want to give you a, a quick update on what the Eurasia Group call is. Uh, it has been this way since actually... Um, Saturday, in that in lifting the threat of a no deal, Oliver Lutwin, who will now vote for the agreement, could very well be remembered as the man who paved the way for deal approval. Now, why do we say that? And, and our call is we think that Boris is within touching distance of getting the majority that he needs. So for those MPs who wanted to take no deal off the table, we think that they will now be more ready to vote for a deal. This includes 17 of the 21 former Tories who lost whip for backing the the Ben Act. Same for the labor backbenchers that the government has now been wooing. We think that Boris needs an additional five to six more labor votes to get to the number that he needs. Meredith, what is lost on a lot of people is that this is not the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning. This is going to go on for a whole lot longer, even once this deal passes. We then need to negotiate with Europe what the future relationship looks like. Meredith, how much longer is this going to go on for? It could take a couple of years. 
frankly. And during that period of time, you know, you're going to have a, a year of transition. Uh, and the governments on both sides will be trying to figure out a way to mitigate the negative effects of, of the UK leaving, uh, while also pre they're preparing their populations for what comes next. And this is not just trade and investment, but it's also workforce issues. Uh, people are going to be dislocated and will have to make plans for their future. So you're going to see all this attention that we've had on, are we going to get this deal passed? It's now going to be turned to now to what do we do to move yeah. forward at a time when the eurozone growth is slowing and there's concerns about the political yeah. will of country governments to do the fiscal stimulus necessary to keep these key economies out of recession. Yeah. Meredith, thank you so much. Too short, Meredith. Thank you, Meredith. Eurasia Group with us today. Greatly appreciate uh, the perspective there on England. One of our most popular guests, Dark at the Door, Charles Cantor with Newberger Berman, uh, looking at long and short. It always uh, gives us good spirit on the, uh, the equity markets. You mentioned earlier to me, Charles, the idea that the gloom out there is tangible. Give us the level of gloom that you see right now. I think gloom um, in the equity market, um, despite t 10 years of excess returns for both equities and, and credit, gloom is ubiquitous. I think you see it in valuations. You see it in the record amount of cash that's flowed into money market funds the last six months. I think it's about $325 billion, which is similar to what you saw in 2008. So there's, there's no lack of worry um, in the stock market, whether it be global manufacturing recession, slowing earnings, impeachment, Trump, Brexit, pick your poison. Um, I, think, I think it's not lost on, on equity valuations um, in general. And I would say um, because of that, for anyone that has a, a, an investment time horizon that can be measured in five and 10 years, um, I would just urge folks to stay the course because I think the next five to 10 years will produce um, at minimum average equity-like returns, which will more than likely get the job done for most. Well, let's talk about 2020, the risk-reward proposition going into next year. The low single digits, low single digit profit growth, does that get it done? Is that good enough? So um, next year is going to have a lot of idiosyncratic risk. It's not lost on you that we have an election at, at the back end yeah. of, of 2020. But I need to say this. The ability of anyone in this chair to predict the next one year return is a complete random walk if you believe in valuations. I can show you the data. Whether the starting multiple is high or low, prospective one-year returns are totally unpredictable. I know everyone wants to talk about the next one year. Right. I beg folks to look a little longer. And because of the amount of pessimism that is in the market today, um, the likelihood that, the, that, that, that we enjoy attractive five to 10-year returns is very high. So Charles, this is really important. For anyone that stumbled across this channel and thought, you know what, I'll listen to this, and I'll listen to this guy talking about investing. I can't predict the next year with any accuracy. Try and predict the next five years because that's easier. Yes. That, that sounds counterintuitive to some people who perhaps aren't in the market with the experience that you have. Why does that make sense? It's, it's all driven by my philosophy um, that starting points on valuation are the most critical inputs. And the more reasonable the starting point is for anyone that has a long-term investment horizon, 
um, the greater the likelihood that you're going to enjoy at least average equity-like returns. And I can tell you, based on our work, based on where, the, where, where valuations are, which I know folks think stock prices are high. Yes, stock prices are high, but earnings growth has, has more than caught up with that. For anyone that believes that has a cash flow, earnings, economic profit valuation mindset, today's starting point is more than attractive for anyone that has a five to yeah, ten the, year investment the, horizon. The heart of this, this is so important. The heart of this is John asked a good question there in the blended market. You're not looking at the blended market. You're looking right. at what? Five or ten or fifteen percent of the stocks that are out there. The goal increasingly and thankfully for the first time in ten years has moved away from treasury yields being a put on the market to actually understanding your companies, um, understanding how they're to deploy capital and the markets and the growth that they're going after. So for us, it's kind of like kids in a candy store right now because for the first time in a while, there's wide dispersion um, between securities, between right. growth and value, between large and small. Well, and so for our job, uh, we feel like finally um, – Certainly running okay. long short. We're playing a little I mean, golf with it, we playing golf with a little wind. It's Monday. Nobody's listening. Give us <laughs> one idea here. Give us one company that meets the Cantor Prism. One company that it meets just, the Cantor Prism. Just give prism. us a name I don't know. What about Brookfield Asset Management? The real estate people. Real Canada. estate, infrastructure, um, they long buy, duration. Can they buy the Montreal Canadiens? They're probably not going to buy the Montreal <clears throat> Canadiens, um, but they're they all about alternative assets. They own scale and scope in long-duration assets with inflation protection that most yeah. folks don't. Their 10-year track record is spectacular, and there's no reason to believe yeah. that, that the next 10 years well, won't be as good. 19% per year with 11% five-year dividend growth. Charles Cantor, thank you so much. Newberger New Berman there. We didn't get to Amazon. We'll do that next Hardly time. Hardly scratched the surface. The Big week of earnings ahead. <clears throat> Let's bring in a guest, shall we? Laurie Calvacina, RBC Capital Markets Head of US Equity Strategy. Laurie, do you find that that some people have struggled to get over Q4 2018, even 12 months later? I think especially as we flipped the calendar into 4Q, those scars, as you mentioned, run pretty deep. Um, one thing we noticed, if you look back at sort of late August, early September, we had that weird style rotation in the market that felt to a lot of people similar to what we had seen late last year when people were just starting to take profits on the names that had done really well. Now, that's all died down, but there was a little bit of, I wouldn't quite call it panic, but there was a high level of nervousness when you saw that profit-taking trade happen. You think the position unwind still has more to go. Walk me through that. So, you know, we're, we're a little bit less focused on the growth value discussion right now. Um, but in terms of looking at sectors, you know, one area that we've really been trying to focus people has been on industrials. And we're quite simply looking at it and saying, we've been fighting the trade war here for a year and a half. You're at financial crisis lows relative to the S&P. Um, you know, so far, earnings have been good. We'll see if that continues. But really, we feel like five years down the road, we're all going to look back at this period in time and say, we should have been buying the machinery stocks in the middle of the trade war. This is your big cyclicals call. At the moment, right? Right. And, and I would just stress, you know, we have enough nervousness of our own. We, we don't like where valuations are. We have some positioning concerns. We are keeping some overweights on defensives, things like REITs and utilities. But we want those to be very balanced with cyclicals that we think have been de-risked, like financials and industrials. Yeah, so I'm looking at some of the, the overweights in the large cap sectors that you like at the moment and, and struggle to reconcile <clears throat> the overweight in financials with the, 
the positioning utilities, those two things. Walk me through why you're strong on one and strong on the other. I think we think about them in terms of different time horizons. So it feels like utilities and REITs are the things that we want in our portfolio for, say, the next six to 12 months. You know, and I would emphasize probably more of the six than the 12. But when we think about things like financials and industrials, that feels more like a longer term call where we're really going to wish we have been um, when we look back in a year. Fortunately, industrials are working right now. We'll see if that lasts. I just did October to October. 13 percent per year over the last four years, 14 percent per year over the last three years, 10 percent per year over the last two years, 10 percent over the last year as well. Forward, are you going to make double digit equity returns with the same stocks of that one year, two year, three year, four year excellence? I think when we we sort of peer into 2020 and we start to think about what's to come, we feel like you're going to have a whole heck of a lot of less multiple expansion than what we've had. I mean, we've had just tremendous. So what does that mean? You see how she goes partial differentials on a Monday? Just let her continue. Multiple expansion, is it a price movement or is it an earnings movement? So basically this year we're going to have flattish earnings growth, it looks like, but we've had this tremendous move in the equity market. It's been multiple expansion from the Fed. Um, Next year, we think you're going to get a lot less of that. We think the Fed is probably going to be on pause. We're looking for about 5 6% earnings growth next year. So, you know, I would say less exciting than where we've been. So what's a 20 multiple stock? The price to earnings, price to cash flow is 2-0. Where does that migrate to 12 months out? I think it's going to depend sector by sector. You know, I'll yeah, tell sir. you some, some of the areas where I am, frankly, very worried about the multiples are things like software stocks, and a lot of those are arguably Well, that's like Microsoft? Well, I, I can't get into individual uh, names, but... Yeah, you know, but, it, but come yeah. on. There, some of these stocks are moonshots. You're telling me to sell the moonshot? Um, I don't ever want to be recommending to people that you buy things that are incredibly overvalued, incredibly overowned in hedge fund land at a time when we are starting to see right. pockets of the market factor in six What's under-owned? Risks. What's under-owned? French fund land. So when we look at the industrial space, we think that one's become a lot less owned. Have you ever been to Hedge Fundland? Hedge Fundland. It's a, it's a Disney World, isn't it? Is the food good? It's a, you go down there and it's like a one-week lacrosse camp, except Disney has it as four days. And, you know, your daughter plays lacrosse and you go to Hedge Fundland. Well, let me give you one stat on the industrials. If you look at sell-side net buy ratings, they are right back down to 2016-type lows. Now, I don't know what three, uh, 13Fs are going to look like for 3Q yet. We'll have to see that data when it comes out. jargon in the last three sentences there? What's that? Let's let's un- let's yeah. un- let's unwrap. What do they say? Let's unwrap that. Unwrap it. Sell side what? If you look at sell side net buy rating, so just a gauge of So that's like the analysts and what they think. It's looking at the analysts. It's my favorite way to gauge positioning because, number one, I think it aggregates what you're seeing from sell siders, hedge funders, mutual fund investors. Everybody's kind of baked into that number in terms of what they purely feel. But we can also look at that on a daily basis. So we get a very, very fresh read. You are back down to historical lows, which is in line with 2016 lows. That's about as washed out as anything we've seen. Consumer staples, by the way, were right there a year ago. That was one of the reasons we liked Staples last year. So let's talk about industrials a little bit more because I know you've got to run it a couple of minutes. I'm looking at the economic data worldwide at the moment. The South Korean export data was terrible. The Japanese export data wasn't great either. The economic data still... Without much conviction, I don't think many people can make the argument that we've started to bottom out. I think that's a low conviction call. So what do you see in industrials apart from the valuation? Where are you seeing stability? Well, the other thing we've noticed, if you look at the rate of upward revision, so it's a way to gauge sentiment around earnings, that's been extremely low. It's been one of the sectors where we've seen the most downward revisions coming into this reporting season. Areas like technology, consumer discretionary, you just haven't seen quite as many. And so, you know, the other thing we've been saying about the the economy and the broader outlook is if we lose this economy, Economy. Everyone mm-hmm. already knows the manufacturing sector is weak. The consumer resiliency thesis is what's at risk. We 
we haven't seen the downward revisions there. We don't see the washed out valuations there. We don't see the washed out sentiment there. So if we see a tipping point as opposed to a turning point out of a growth scare, we think there's more yeah. risk in okay. areas like consumer. Well, cut to the chase. What's Purcell say? Well, Tom is still very bullish on the economy for next year, um, but you know, if you talk to him, he will tell you that the risk that we talk ourselves into a recession has risen. Um, so I think he's still in the bullish camp, but he has he has yeah. tempered that a little bit. Laurie, great to see you. And they've got to run. Well, she has to go. She's got to go. We've got to let her go. Laurie Cavasina, obviously Laurie, capital good markets. Good to see you. Thank you. Head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Yeah, the Bentley's out front. This is a joy. This is without question the quietest guy in New York. It is a name you don't know. You know Hearst, of course, and all that Frank Benick has done for them in the years. His leadership at New York Presbyterian and at Lincoln Center particularly has been absolutely profound, and he has put out a book that's based on culture, which is something to talk about right now. But I got to go because I'm in the room with Paul Sweeney, who's expert on media. I got to go to your your harsh negotiating tactics here. <laughs> LBJ's in a Lincoln bombing down the road with one hand yep. negotiating in a Lincoln out in the LBJ ranch. Dick, what do you think our TV station in Austin is worth? Excuse me, Lyndon. I want to take a picture of that bull over there. Later, LBJ, not even one to be denied follow-up. Dick, do you think an Austin station would be worth as much as a San Antonio station that recently sold? Is that how business is done in the <laughs> insane media business? Well, I, business is done in so many ways. Uh, that's certainly unique, however. And uh, it's my view that, that President Johnson was not really trying to get Dick to buy the station, but he was so opposed to uh, taking risks that that would entail that he had this little Minox camera that he would stop every time President Johnson would try to nail him and take a picture. So. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, the, the, Paul, this goes back, and this is the Mays family and everybody sure. else who put media together. San Antonio, Texas. It's all yeah. transactional. It's all transactional. Yeah. Back in the day, it was uh, big media tycoons, big media personalities. And of course, uh, Frank, executive vice chairman and former CEO of Hearst. And what I like about Frank and the Hearst company, Tom, is it's the biggest media company that nobody's ever heard of. Um, and they've owned print, they've owned broadcasting, they've owned cable TV, including this little cable network, uh, partial ownership ESPN. Frank, so give us a sense of, you know, kind of how Hearst has evolved and tried to stay on the forefront of media trends, whether it was print to broadcast to cable. How do you guys do it? Well, that, the generation of managements that I represent got handed a wonderful opportunity. Uh, the company almost, Mr. Hearst, almost lost the company in the Great Depression. Uh, everybody knows it was an afternoon newspaper company. When I came to New York, we had three television stations. And when I got the opportunity to run the company beginning in 1979, I knew that the pivot had to be made and that electronic was the place to go initially. And incidentally and parenthetically, my successors will be making yet another pivot because, of course, the world is changing What's now. What's a pivot to right now when the kids won't sit around and watch one well, second in, of in, advertising? In our case, the pivot is to business uh, media 
databases that people use every day. For example, we acquired the Fitch Rating Agency, yeah. which is one of the three largest rating agencies yeah. in the world. Yeah. We have databases for both the medical profession and for automobiles. For example, if you have a, an auto wreck, God forbid, when you go into the shop, the data that's used, both parts cost and where to get it and the amount of labor all come out of a database that we offer. What do you think of all the young Turks? I mean, you guys used to run things on price to cash flow and like actual <laughs> accounting, and you tried to figure out down the income statement there would be this strange thing called profit. What do you think of these guys with the revenue growth, hopefully, but no profit? Well, some of them seems seem to have brought along uh, their uh, their investment base, their shareholders. Uh, certainly in the case of Amazon, you have to say what a phenomenal job he's done in his shareholders staying with him during a time where he wasn't uh, returning a profit. Now, of course, he's returning a profit. I think the system that we have with public companies where uh, earnings per share rather than cash flow uh, are most looked at, I think they lend to that kind of, a, of, of an approach to business. And I, I happen to think how, how much is going to fall out if you show, shake, turn us upside down, how much right. is going to fall out of our pockets is what uh, business is about. And so therefore, there's no one that puts a heavier emphasis on cash than, than we do. So Frank, in your career, you've seen you know the media landscape transition from print to electronic, as you mentioned, radio and TV broadcasting to cable television. Now we got this new thing called the internet, and that seems to really be changing the way people consume media, and therefore the way big media companies need to distribute their media. What do I need to own? And we've seen your good friends at the Walt Disney Company really change and pivot that company, for example, to appeal to the new consumer and how media is consumed. What's the Hearst Corporation thinking about streaming and, and kind of embracing the internet well, and dis, uh, distributing their content? Happily, we're uh, a part of that as it relates to our ownership in ESPN, right. which is one of the places that Disney is making that pivot. But we're also uh, independently and with other, other parts of our business putting a significant emphasis on the web and on the internet. And uh, it's as yeah. certain that, that we need to do that as it was when we needed to, to go electronic. I want to talk about the book. The book is Leave Something on the Table, and it is a wonderful history out of Texas of uh, Frank Benick. Um, I, I want to talk about culture right now. You lead with culture is everything. How do you make a culture in a rushed modern world? Well, it's all about the respect that you have for the people who work with you. That's How that's can you do that if they're working 80 hours a week? Well, we don't have them working 80 hours, and that doesn't work for us. Uh, we recognize that people are entitled to have lives of their own, and if management wants respect, it has to show respect to the employees. So the first principle is the company's larger than the employee. Let's build a culture where everybody is inclined to be on the same page. Now, there's no perfection, but I would argue that our culture mm -hmm. is by far the biggest item of the success of a company that's come yeah. from 400 million to 11 billion dollars over uh, on my watch and i, I think that that re the relationship yeah. and culture is is at the heart of that i mean you got pretty good blurbs for your book yes I mean, yeah, you did okay. okay. leave Tom. something on bad. the table <laughs> not too bad only because of this blurb he's coming back frank bennick 
Spent decades running a company at the center of American culture. Boy, is that true. Leave something on the table, offers valuable lessons and leadership by a great CEO and an even better storyteller. That's true, too. Michael Bloomberg. Bloomberg LP. Of course, Mr. Bloomberg, uh, uh, principal owner of uh, Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television. we got to leave it there. Frank Bennick, thank you so much. Leave something on the table. I really can't say enough about it from a childhood in Texas and driving down country roads with LBJ uh, with one hand on the wheel to uh, dealing with the American Broadcasting Company and his immense philanthropy to New York City, including tangible leadership at Lincoln Center. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.